0: With episode number fifty-eight of the Principles of Performance podcast, I am your host Eric Degatti along with my friend and co-host Mike Perry. M- Mike, welcome this afternoon. We got another great guest lined up for us today. I'm
1: looking forward to uh, to this one today, man. We have got uh, you know a legend in the industry here, and uh, this gentleman knows uh, knows a lot about a lot. Uh, I've I've seen him present, gosh, several times. Um, And every single time I'm writing little nuggets of information down that he uh, that he shares with whoever he's presenting with. So, um, you know, we're excited to have an awesome guest today. And uh, yeah, man, I'm doing good. Just another day in Boston. Um, It could be snowing tomorrow. It could be raining. It could be snowy. It could be a hurricane. So I'm just going to look outside and, and see what the day brings and go from there.
0: Cool. So, so this guy actually has connections to both Jersey and Boston. So it's really kind of cool how it, it comes full circle. So Coach Dwayne Carlisle, he's been in the industry for over 25 years. And most people who've, who've been in performance know his name. He uh, uh, serves as a fitness coach for the NFL officials right now, as well as he's the founder of Carlisle Training Systems. He's out in the Bay Area in California. Uh, he's worked with thousands of athletes, beginner to elite, as well as six pro sport teams, including the speed development coordinator for the Eagles. So we won't hold that against your coach. You um, uh, <laughs> also work with the Tampa Rays. Uh, he's a former uh, head and strength conditioning coach of the 49ers in San Francisco, also served as director of sports performance at Purdue, overseeing training for all their sports programs. He's a master strength and conditioning coach through the Collegiate Strength and Conditioning Association and a Boston University track and field wall of honor inductee. And I first became aware of Dwayne's work, and I'm going to date myself now, going back to the old sportsspecific.com days, coach, where oh. I have, yes, where I have <laughs> CDs of... of of you and Lee Taft and and all that going back. So that's how far it goes
2: back. So we're excited to have you on the show. Oh, thank you. Thanks, thanks. Hopefully I can live up to that intro, I appreciate it. (laughs) All right, Mike, kick us off.
1: All right, so the old expression, right? You can't teach speed. Explain what is right, but also what is wrong about that statement.
2: Well, there's a lot to unpack when it comes to that statement. I, th- I think it's interesting. Historically speaking, that was a dominant, dominant perspective. I can't teach speed. I can't teach speed. And you would think that over the last 25 plus years with the influx of speed coaches, more improved you know, techniques to, to measure, to measure performance and so forth, you would think. That, that still wouldn't hold true, that people would actually believe that you can teach speed. And yet you still hear it. You still hear it to this day, right? Especially from announcers that watch your game mode. God hits a breakaway. You can't teach speed. You can't teach that, folks. And to a certain degree, you can't. It's often been said that genetic influence is a key factor when it comes to speed. And we're talking about that elite Olympic level athlete. You've Heard the term or heard the expression that it genetic genetic makeup is key. And if you want to be an Olympic level athlete, pick your parents. So that's one thing, right? Genetic influence. Then the second thing is you have natural speed suits. You have people who just possess great speed and that, you know, they can wake up and we've all seen them, right? They They don't really engage in training. They were just born fast, get up in the morning and they can ride. Right. But here's the key. Everyone can improve. And, you know, and the most empowering counterpoint to that is the fact that you can improve speed. Not everyone's gonna be in Usain Boat or, or Security Richardson. However, through certain factors and maximizing developmental windows, such as when a kid is eight to eleven or nine to twelve for male athlete, eight to eleven female, nine to twelve for a male athlete. You, you can maximize that. And there, there's, if you focus on speed throughout their athletic development, that athlete's going to get faster, right? And that's where I think we miss it. It's improving, right? Focusing on improving an athlete's speed over the course of their athletic career that can really help enhance those factors. Technique matters. Technique matters. Teaching athletes just good biomotor skills and teaching them how to apply force and so teaching them postural aspects of speed, teaching them front side mechanics, backside mechanics, and so forth, those are all super, super important factors. So in my opinion, you can teach speed. You can teach someone to be faster. And ultimately what you're looking for is to get them up to their genetic ceiling.
0: Well you okay. know you you're right in that there is a lot to unpack. And I got a couple follow-up questions. And and I mean the bottom line reality is is even when you do talk about the highest level you know, I always lean on the Jay-Z line of the numbers don't lie, check the scoreboard. Like the numbers at NFL Combine, the numbers in the Olympics, those numbers are changing. And, and just when you thought we couldn't get any more, squeeze any more juice out of the lemon, we are. And so those things are changing. You, I mean, I don't remember when I started out seeing linemen running sub fives and things like that. So like, talk a little bit about those sure. numbers, how the reality is they are changing. And those are people that we thought we maxed out
2: true but when you look at times we're talking about an infinitesimal like that word fellas my old school vocabulary i studied english are my friend <laughs> we're just talking about a little small improvement right? as it relates to a 40-yard dash you know back in the day bo jackson 419, Deion Sanders, 421. And then you have some guys who are running 422s and so forth. So it the, the improvement's not that big from the athletes back in the day. However, there's a lot more of them and that are running fast. And you hit the nail on the head. Look at the positions that are running fast now, right? Your old linemen, D-linemen, those guys are getting it. They're moving down, they're moving down the track at the combine. Conversely, you look at your track athletes. Usain Bolt put it out there, right? Nine five nine. However, look at how many more athletes are running sub nine nine zero. Oh, there's a lot more, and a lot more internationally. When you look at across the board globally, there's a lot more athletes running that. So, yeah, they're, they're pushing. They're pushing, pushing the needle. Athletes are running faster, and I think that's due to just improved training methods.
0: Now, the term speed is also, it's relative, right? And it, it needs to kind of be put in context as to the sport, the activity, the position. So, so let's say you're starting off a team or an athlete. How do you begin to like put together that profile, start to classify and categorize like the types of speed required for this individual and in their activities? Okay,
2: so here's, I'm gonna get on a soapbox for a second. And I'm gonna answer that question. But when you look at, long-term athletic development model right as it relates to these are the stages that you have to take an athlete through in order to develop the proficiency such that when they're in an athletic competition man it's on autopilot and they're able to to get from point a to point b so you look at this long-term model and oftentimes it's it's these stages where an athlete shouldn't compete or, or let me put it this way that they should train independently like movement the skill of speed independent of working on their sports skills and i don't believe that because in the united states our developmental system our youth athletic development system warrants that a kid have some level of skill as well as athletic skill so those two things i think you can work on those things concurrently in other words working on their movement skills while you're working on their sports skills and then marrying those two things together. So when we look at speed and how do you profile an athlete and identify what area to target as it relates to enhancing and raising their speed, you know, there's several different things. You have JB Marin's data out there and research, which is phenomenal, whereby I was doing a speed test. You take the athlete through a speed test and, you know, they set up your timing gates every five yards. And then from there, you can, if they're running an athlete in a 40-yard dash, you can extrapolate whether an athlete needs more acceleration, whether an athlete needs more top end, or whether they're balanced. And from that information, it will help drive the training process from the standpoint of, all right, this kid needs more excel, this kid needs more top end. Now, here's a caveat. You can have a kid that runs a 40 and yet that kid is slow. So they can run a 40, let's say six flat and the kid's balanced. It's like, okay, yeah, your Excel is balanced relative to your top end. However, guess what kid? We We need to improve your top end, right? We need to move everything up. So I take those assessments And I take them from the standpoint of it's great for direction, but then also, you know, you have to be able to look at what types of speeds does a kid need? How fast is that kid relative to not only the kids within their team, but there's a lot of normative data out there as it relates to a 40 and a 60, how, how fast are they relative to the, to the bigger population? And then when we're looking at athletes that play team-based sports what type of speed do they need to excel at their sport and so those are things that i believe are critical critical things to look at in order to you know assess speed but more importantly to assess it to drive the training process to give them what they need to raise their overall ceiling
1: So you, you mentioned speed testing, uh, you know, not too long ago, and the go-to standard that most people use for testing is the 10 or the 40 or the 60. Uh, let me ask you this: What can we learn from those tests, and where do those tests fall short?
2: Well, first, again, you have a lot of normative data because those have been the those have been the tests; those are the the gold standard tests. or or let's just say the most common tests that are used to evaluate speed. Because one, they're they're the cheapest and it's easy to administer. So you have a kid run a 40-yard dash. We all know what a good 40-yard dash should be for both a male and female athlete. We know what a good 60-yard dash. Baseball is a 60-yard dash. So we know what those numbers should look like, what's good, what's not good. Because again, there's a lot of normative data. The challenge becomes is comparing the data across the board. There's a lot of different factors to look at, right? One of them is, what's your starting position? Is a kid in a two-point stance? Are they in a three-point stance? Was that kid on grass? Was that kid on turf? Was that kid on concrete? What are the timing systems that we use to measure? Was it a timing gate? Is it a stopwatch? I'll give you an example. I was at Purdue six years, and every year, the NFL, we have, we have a pro day for the NFL, and I have my timing gate set up, really nice system, swift system, and we have our split set up and so forth because we want to capture our guys' time, right? We were timing them on timing gates, and here's their big moment, so we want to get accurate times. But guess what? The NFL scouts... They all were at the finish line, and what did they have in their hand? Their stopwatch. And I'd explained to them before, hey guys, look, you can put your stopwatches away. This is the most accurate method of timing. No, the way it worked, they all timed them with their hand, and then they would huddle together, and they would throw out the high, they throw out the low, and then in the spur of the moment, they somehow they would miraculously do the math to come up with an average or a mean and then say, okay, this is what this athlete's 40 yard dash time is. So there's so many different ways that people look at that information. And I think that's one of the downsides of it. Now introduce GPS. So with GPS systems, and you can get fairly accurate information with regard to acceleration, you can get their top end speed, you can get change of direction. So you can get a whole another data set that will give you information around how the athlete moves in practice as well as in games. So it enriches the information you can extrapolate from that as a coach to be able to look at you know, the game speed versus their testing speed and how the, how those two relate. So there's, there's just a number of different things to look at But I think at the end of the day, what we have to look at as coaches is taking that information and saying, okay, how do I use this information to ensure that my athletes are prepared to be able to play for however long that game lasts at a high, high level?
0: So there's a ton of buttons you hit
2: there that I want to
0: follow up on. So first of all, the story about the, the stopwatches is crazy. And the, it, like, it's like, no coach, keep your calculator. I got an advocate over here. I'm good. You know? oh, yeah, so, oh, yeah. Um, But like talking about that difference between track speed and game speed. So, you know, like how people talk about how it may not translate your best 40 times and you have your combine heroes and your winners of the underwear Olympics who don't translate well to actually being able to play on the field and then, so the question comes up, well, why do we use the 40? Why don't we just use the GPS data? And, you know, I try to explain like, well, part of the combine now it's become a TV show, right? Is it's not just about that in, in people at the bar, the sports bar, aren't going to talk about people's GPS data, but it's easy to throw out 40 times. Um, you know, and then in terms of how it may not translate, people don't understand. I remember having this conversation with joe defranco uh, a bunch of years ago because he had one of his athletes who lit up his combine or pro day scores and then he gets in his first year in the league and he's and he looks like he's as if he's playing slow and then the next year he comes back and he's playing significantly faster and they said joe what did you change in your training he said nothing i didn't change anything he just figured out how to play the game and there was a whole nother level of recognition there was a whole nother level of him actually understanding the sport so he didn't have that hesitation of trying to calculate things in his head. He just could go and actually express that athleticism. So let's talk. start breaking down a little bit of that game
2: speed versus track speed or, or testing speed. Okay, so since you're on the example of football and I can talk about a number of different sports as it relates to track speed versus game speed. I, I think Joe hit the nail on the head because this is what I know from having spent eight years at the Eagles, six years with the 49ers. And spent a lot of time with position coaches. Here's the thing. Someone goes out and they test and they run. You know, let's say if it's a wide receiver and he runs 4 3 and change. Okay, you know that dude's got juice, right? He's got juice, a linear, linear, straight path. And here's the thing about the 40 yard dash as it relates to track speed. You know, it's it's predictable right athletes know their route they know where they're going to start they know where they're going to end and, and there's nobody impeding there's nobody impeding that 40 yard dash nobody so they they can execute the parameters of that 40 yard dash because it's predefined and it's okay i'm going to get my start right i'm going to go through my the process of running a fast 40 yard dash great so what really good coaches do is they verify their track times with what they see on film. And if those two match up, then now you got something because they're looking at, okay, this person's speed shows up on the field, which is unpredictable, right? Players have to adjust to the constraints of the game and to the positions. And they have to be able to look at they have to be able to realize the the cognitive component, the reaction and perception component, because now they're playing against other people. They're out on the field. There's there's 11 people on offense, 11 on defense, right? If I'm a wide receiver, right? Me and the quarterback got to be on the same page. I got to run this route. There's a person lined up in front of me. And then I got to be able to process the coverage and so forth. There's a timing element. So there's so many factors that come into play, which if you have someone who's new, who tested really well, And then now they're in practice, OTAs. They're they're learning a whole new playbook. They're learning a whole new technique. They're being stripped of what they knew to be true about playing the position in college where they excelled. And now they've got to learn this whole system. So guess what? Their Their processor gets slowed down with information. It's just like a computer, right? When our storage capacity gets full, then it, the process of information is not processed as fast. The computer runs slow. So then what do we do? Man, we got to go out and get boost this memory. I got to get this RAM up so I can get my computer running. Well, here's what happens. With a great player, coaches know that when they draft a kid, right, that's why they spend so much time learning about the person and learning about a kid's recall their ability to process information. How does this kid learn? How do I need to teach this kid? And so you're able to bridge that gap between what you saw at the combine and obviously the performances on the field. And now you take it to the, to the field of the, the next level of professional sports and you can teach that kid properly, right? And you're working with that kid properly. And then now if you got a kid who's going to go the extra mile and learn, and they're not gonna get discouraged. They've got resiliency to them. They start to learn the position, right? And they start to figure it out. And then guess what, boom, their play speed increases. And what you see on the field starts to manifest itself. in that expression of that 40 yard dash where that kid can now catch that slant because they know the courage and then they can ride. It's like, okay, I'm gonna split you. And then that four, three starts to come out and you're like, hey. So then the last thing I want to say about that is, hey, four threes—it's is great. We did it one time at the combine, but we know in the game of football, right, on offense, you might be going 80-85 plays, and you do it in the fourth quarter. So that's why I think conditioning, right, whatever term you want to use, everyone likes to use all these different – there's all these different iterations of what conditioning is, and it's broken down into – and, and, and justifiably so, broken down into ways that uh, kind of describe the different aspects of conditioning. It's key. It's key because we got to go first quarter to fourth quarter, right? And we have to be able to go. Everyone always talks about Jerry Rice, man. Jerry Rice, Jerry Rice, and fourth quarter hit, man. That dude, that dude was lining up in front of somebody, going, "Hey, you know what?" Hm. Let's go, baby, because I know I'm in great, I'm in great shape. I'm in great fitness. So I know that's a long answer to that question, but you know what? It, it's obviously something that I've thought a lot about.
1: So talking about game speed, so how do you balance all of these sort of rehearsed, predictable drills like mechanical work, ladders, you know, whatever you're doing running through cones versus reactive type and true agility based movements where they have to respond to some sort of external stimulus. How do you balance those
2: two out? Okay. So look, this is how I go about it. All right. This this has been my, my method of how I address that. So I have three sons who I've coached more than anyone that I've ever coached because they were my sons, right? They came out the womb and pop was pop had the whistle. Let's go. Let's go fellas. All right. So You know, they all played, they all played at a division one level in their respective sports. And the thing that I did with them is first and foremost, teaching them how to sprint by teaching them how to sprint. That's big. So what did we do? Taught them dribbles, marches, skipping patterns, taught them, you know, straight leg runs, all those things that help to enforce proper sprint mechanic, right? Goes back to the old Vern Gambetta, pal, posture, arm action, leg action. I mean, that he summarized that in such an eloquent way that can be used as a building block for how you should go about teaching your athletes. So first thing I always do is I'm gonna teach linear speed, right? And so with our speed model, that's that's the first thing. And we're gonna focus on acceleration and then we're gonna move into top end because acceleration is going to be the dominant quality for a team sport athlete. Now, from there, after an athlete has, I won't say mastered, but they're competent at acceleration mechanics. They're competent at top-end mechanics. Now we need to introduce, here's the thing. If we're going to start acceleration, we got to teach them how to stop. And we need to teach that early. We need to teach an athlete how to put the brakes on early in the game because again it goes back to the uh, how it is in the united states kids when they're playing games they gotta start they gotta stop they gotta change direction they're accelerate they're out there playing games they're out there playing games right so it is very very important from my perspective to make sure that we build those training methodologies into the program early so after we've taught acceleration we're teaching deceleration right then we're going to teach change of direction but we're going to start with teaching change of direction and we're going to approach you know frontal plane lateral movement by teaching them the proper mechanics of how to shuffle teaching them a crossover step teaching them those movements that emanate from that position because those positions are also dominant positions in a team sport at team sport From there, we're gonna go into multi-directional movement and we're gonna teach those things. And then fast forward, we're now we're gonna combine the perception action and teach, create a playground, so to speak. And so with my boys, I created a playground. I don't want my boys stiff, right? So what we would do is we play a game of juke. But let's say one of my sons are on the other end, the other three and myself, or the other two and myself, or on the other end, we throw the ball, man. We have a little boundary. You got to be able to. You got to be able to shake us, right? So, what we're working on: stop, start, spatial awareness. They've got all these different obstacles that they have to negotiate, and different decisions that they got to negotiate. But the goal, you got to score behind us, right? We can't. This, the lateral, oh, one side to this side, one side. So here's what it. Here's what it developed. It developed their ability to start, stop. It developed their ability to. To understand spaces. Because here's the reality: great spatial awareness athletes, they're really good at calculating math in their head. See, we don't we don't look at it like that. They're able to process, man, this angle. If I if I can get to this angle, right, from this position, they're, they're, they're doing geometry in their head. They're looking at angles. So I think that those elements of how you progress an athlete right from foundational movements linear both acceleration top end frontal plane then we have our transverse plane our multi-directional movements right while all the while teaching all the nuances of foot position inside edge push as we're working on multi-direction and frontal plane movement and then Teaching that start and stopping ability, weaving that into their program and then moving it into a gamified situation where it's a reactive component to it, where they have to make these decisions and do things in a way that gets them outside of their body, right? We, we, want, we often hear the term we want to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Same thing applies with movement. If you just move in a certain pattern in a certain way, then that's how you're going to move. But when you are able to do things and taking a kid beyond their threshold and taking a kid beyond their comfort zone in terms of movement, guess what? Now that kid has downloaded a particular movement pattern into their software and hopefully it's expressed on the playing field in a way that, whoa, I just did that? Oh, I just did that. Yeah, you did because you practiced it.
0: Hey, everybody, a quick break in the action here. Hope you're enjoying the show and we appreciate you listening. We're working hard to bring you the highest quality content and best guests every single week. So if you could do us a big favor and go and like and subscribe to the show on whatever platform you get your podcasts on, it would be greatly appreciated. Be sure to listen at the end of the show also to find out where you can find out more information about our courses, as well as a special discount code for all our listeners. Thanks again. And let's get back to the show. I hope everybody appreciates the elegance and, and all of that was said there because there's a lot of, of stuff there. So we had a guy on our show a couple of weeks back, Tony Abettini, who's a who does something called visual psychology. And we talked about that understanding and appreciating space. Um, and if you read the work of people like Rob Gray, talking about how those calculations are made in your head, that I'm that punt returner. And as I'm gazing up, I have to calculate how close is this guy to me, how, what's his rate of speed? Do I have a chance to get to the border? Like all these things that you're doing and you have to do those in a, in a millisecond is just, is mind baffling. And it's a whole nother level of performance that, that most people even haven't started to even think
2: about let alone grasp like you have. Now, and, before and we
0: put to, can, I, can, can, I, can I just ahead. interject oh, one, one thing. thing?
2: Now, okay, now take this. This goes back to your other question. A 10, you know, a 40, a 60. When you have that athlete, that's got that, that's got that gear, that that piece gear, right? Piece. And so they're calculating, they're on a punt return, and they know they're fast. And they know if I can hit this corner, deuces, because they got drop dead speed, right? Pop pop. Well, guess what? That's where that linear speed component and raising that athlete's top end speed comes into play because that confidence level of knowing like, man, if I hit this corner, I'm gone. That comes from being fast.
0: All right, so let's keep that going because this is going to be my question going back to the game speed uh, or I love what you said, play speed versus versus track speed. So, but, you know, one of the Twitter arguments that you could waste your, your time going down a rabbit hole with is, you know, every kid should run track. especially so if they want to get faster in football, run track. Now, when people, coach, parents will ask me, I'll say, well, yes, but it really depends. First, you got to have a good coach who actually knows how to teach the types of things that you're talking about, how to develop those qualities, because if they're just going to stand there with a stopwatch and stop watching your cell phone, then you're wasting a whole season. You could have gotten better actually doing the type of training you're talking about or spending that in the weight room. So talk a little bit about that argument of, you know, when does that actually apply that, hey, you should run track to get better
2: at this. Man, track's a different beast, right? Track is a whole different beast. And so when you look at being a track athlete or running track to improve your speed, I've seen it work for some athletes and then I've seen it not work for some athletes because it's a different, different beast. You're talking from someone who is or who was, <laughs> is, mm-hmm. who was a track athlete and who started his career. I started my career as a sprint coach at Penn State. And I've worked with so many different team sport athletes. And I know this, when you're talking track, right? What event are we talking? Are we talking a hundred? A hundred is a whole different beast than being fast on the field because we know the ex- dominant acceleration pattern is... Uh, the dominant quality of speed in a, a team sport athlete is acceleration. So one thing that some of the research has shown is that when you look at an elite level track athlete, or just say a college track athlete and a college team sport athlete, there's a very small difference in their acceleration where they separate is in the top speed. And we know in track, you're not going to reach top speed. Let's say a collegiate athlete, they well, are about 60 meters. And they're on about 60, 50, 60, they're going to reach their top speed. Whereas a team sport athlete, I want you to reach your top speed way earlier. So when you look at training for track, it's one piece to it, right? So yes, hopefully we can improve our top end speed. That, that would be the objective. If I was going to say, hey, look, you need to run track, man, this is what you need to do. And there's a lot of great things that come from running track there, there is, I'm a track, I'm a track guy. However, when we're talking team sport athlete, there's a lot of things that need to be addressed in order to enhance your overall movement capacity for your given sport. And there's certain things that you're not going to get in track. You know, it's funny, like you look at bounding now, right? I was a triple jumper. And so I've done every bound known to mankind, right? And now you look at Oh, I don't go on Twitter, man. I'm sorry. I'm not a Twitter dude. But on Instagram, you look at all the bounding that takes place, just bounding, all the single, leg, double, and not everybody's doing it correctly. That's, that is a, it's a method to improve elasticity. It's a method to improve force production and power. However, if you're not doing it right, you can cause more harm than good. Conversely, on the track, if you're not doing it right if you're just one of many athletes that are out there and, and let's say you're not you're not that dude or that lady that's that's a top tier athlete then it can work against you particularly if you're not addressing other qualities that are very important the deceleration component right the reacceleration component the spatial awareness component all those other factors
0: so let's let's shift gears a little bit because I I am loving how you talk about how you just kind of systematically break down these qualities and then put together the game plan for developing. So, you know, the common formula for speed, you know, that you originally learn is that it's your stride length times your stride frequency, right? So, talk about like what's missing out of that equation, and if
2: it is like what is that thing? Well, you know, with stride frequency, stride length. That is a common, it's a very common common approach. it's it's timeless, right? It's a principle as it relates to as it relates to the formula for speed. However, what's missing out of that is force, right? ground force or force application. That's a missing component to it. And how much how much force you apply, how quickly you apply it, and in which direction can affect your stride length and your stride frequency. when we look at ground impact, right? the force application, it's like an underlying, it's an underlying cause which determines stride length and step rate. So as we look at force magnitude, that's more related to, you know, I'm sorry, your step, your step length. So we look force magnitude and speed of application, that's more stride length. So when we look at those components, those are some of the things that are missing in that equation. And then you have your step length relative to your leg length. So if we wanna look at the relative component, right, if you're taking, taking measurements from someone's ASIS right down to their lateral malleolus, everyone's different from that standpoint. So as it relates to a stride length, like look at, look at, okay, take Shakira, Shakari, Shakari, she's five, one. Look at the turnover that she was generating. Now, if you look at the 200 meters and you saw her next to Gabby Thomas last week in the world championships, that was, she's probably 5'10", 5'11". You look, see a little with her short strides and she had to generate a lot of turnover in that 200 and you just saw Gabby, her stride length was so much greater. Stride frequency was better in the 100, but that stride frequency didn't have that step length. That step length, my girl was eating up the track on it, even though she didn't win, but like, the other girl went 2140. So as you look at these factors that affect, affect performance as it relates to stride length, stride frequency, the ground reaction force, there's a vertical, as we know, this, when we think about propulsion, there's horizontal forces, right? We talk about horizontal hit projection as it relates to acceleration, right? So it's force, it's force it's a magnitude of force that you're putting down and back right your ground contact is longer in acceleration but then as you get down the body position changes and you get more upright now we're looking at vertical force production and that's a missing element to the equation it's 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 about putting force into the ground and it impacts both stride length step length and stride frequency step rate what also about all those elements,
0: about the efficiency of, of those elements of like the, the loss of efficiency that if I'm trying to get from point A to point B in a straight line, I'm losing some efficiency because now I'm, I'm going across my body or I'm starting to get into frontal and transverse planes as opposed to
2: putting projecting that energy in the right direction. So are we talking team sport or individual? We're we talking a track athlete or are we talking about a team sport athlete? Either so when you look at what can cause inefficiency as it relates to step length and step frequency, there's a couple things that are that are very glaring. If you just break down the body, and this is for simplicity, right? There's front side mechanics, back backside mechanics. There is what's happening on the ground, it's force of application as they toe off, as they put force into the ground, because there's two phases to ground contact. It's putting force into the ground and then there's a push off. So what happens a lot particularly with with younger athletes, their first step is out in front of the center of mass. And when, that, when they cast that foot out in front of the center of mass, that heel is gonna land out in, front of the, out in front of the hips, which is gonna increase their ground contact time because now to complete that stride, the hips have gotta come over the base of support before they can push into the next stride. So it's like running with an emergency brake on. So I spent a lot of time coaching athletes on their first two to three steps right? To be able to get that projection and teach them how to push. Well, when we get to top end, the same thing holds true is that when you look at that stride cycle, are they, are they, do they have a long loping backside? If they have a long loping backside, then they're not going to get, they're not going to get into the optimal hip flexion position on the front side, right? So that's going to affect the amount of force that they put into the ground vertically, and they start to begin to have these loping, reaching strides, so when that foot casts in front of the hip or at ground contact, when they have that loping stride, they are more susceptible to injury. But then also the braking mechanism that occurs there slows them down. So when you look at a track athlete and you look at team sport athlete, that team sport athlete, it, it's it's highly important that they master their ability to start and to stop and their ability to, to be able to do it while they're playing against an opponent, their ability to do it while there may be, you know, a small space or crevice that they're trying to, they're trying to get through or they're trying to position themselves to be able to, to move in that manner. So I think that to summarize that question or answer to that question, it's, it's, it comes down to position, right? It comes down to what position are they in relative to whatever whatever that movement demands at that particular time. I love it. I, I, we can go down a, a rabbit hole with that one too, but I, we'll never get out of here
0: if we keep chasing all these. So, I want to do. I do want to circle back to something you talked about earlier, and you talked and you mentioned about these optimal windows. For speed development over a long term athletic development models, like during those phases where they're pre pubescent or going into puberty, having some really magic windows to work within. So, I wanna kind of give this in two parts, Wayne. First, is talk about those magic windows for development on the long term scale. And then, if you could follow up with short windows that are ideal for development on the short term, meaning like I'm a, over the course of my year, calendar year. If I'm a, a, an athlete, when are some of my, in, in factoring into seasons, preseason, postseason, and so forth, on the short term, on a more
2: microcycle, in terms of best windows for speed development? Okay, so I want to preface answering this question by saying, all I've ever done is coach. That's it. I've, all I've ever done is coach my entire career, my 32 year coaching career. And I say that not to impress you, but to impress upon you. I've seen a lot. And through the thousands and thousands of coaching sessions, here's what I know, right? Here's what I know. Young kids need to be taught how to move better. That if you teach a young kid when they're eight, even earlier, seven, eight, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, 10, you teach a young kid how to move properly. And we're just talking about foundational movement Patterns, right? Get them to be competent, competent at moving. Then now we've set the foundation of which we can build on for that kids' athletic career to give them the best chance to succeed. Because what we do know is that more and more kids are dropping out of sport earlier than ever before. 12, 13. Look at the numbers. Kids who are dropping out of sport. So, from our standpoint as coaches, we need to be able to empower these kids in a way that they can embrace and receive. And then by helping them to get better. Okay. So, I think early and often, one of the things that we do, right? This is, the, I see this all the time. Rather than giving them a good foundation, we want to take that kid. And we want to start doing all kinds of crazy stuff with them because we just see it on Instagram, right? And then we get away from the foundational movement patterns for the kid. We just crazy junk, right? Like stuff that the kid's not ready for. They're structurally not ready for. And we think that because it looks cool, oh, let me go this direction. But you're doing more harm to the kid because you're not establishing that foundation. We want that kid to be able to put their movement skills on autopilot as they move through their athletic career. It should be a building block. So when we think about exposure, exposure, man, we want high speed exposures for these kids. We want to be able to give them a couple days a week and then be able to coach them with their movement. Everyone has gone away. Everyone's all about force production now. And, and, and again, we we address that that's a part of the equation. But then we also know the technical model for running fast, which is it's it's proven it's something that we need to address. And everybody, every kid's gonna run slightly differently. But if we can if we can coach them in a way that helps that kid to optimize their movement patterns, we got a chance with that kid. So as we look at having having designed Training plans for track and field athletes. Very different. It's a very different process for track and field athletes. When I'm not just talking about sprinting, like I've designed programs for horizontal jumpers, for vertical jumpers, right? For hurdlers, for sprinters. Different, different game plans for each of those sports. Those sport they're, they're sports within themselves or unto themselves. But when we look at a team sport athlete, if we look at OK, is that kid like now the greatest challenge that we have is trying to insert our what we can what we can add to a kid's athletic development when they're in fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth grade, because the biggest constraints that we have is time. These kids are playing way more games, way more games. Like when I'm trying to schedule, man, I got to It's like stinking trying to figure out calculus. With the parent, you're trying to figure this out. Now, oh, he's got a game here. They have two games on this day, three games on that day. They got practice. They got this. They got that. I mean, it's 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 crazy. <laughs> so the calendar year becomes a very complex process, like negotiating that and then figuring out how to get a parent because the parent is the high-performance coordinator. And so that kid moves on and they go, the college, they're the high-performance coordinator. They're coordinating their travel. They coordinate their practice schedule. They coordinate their sleep. They coordinate when they eat. They coordinate their their academic schedule. They coordinate their youth activities, their games and practices and hotels. And they, they're doing all that. So it's getting a parent to realize, hey, look, you know what? We we have to make this a priority for your kid. If your kid is going to reach their athletic ceiling, we need to start to take advantage or we need to we need to set aside some time to make sure that that kid's getting the training. So that's on the youth level, right? And then I didn't even mention their high school season. So when you look at the calendar year and when you need to dose the dosages of training that need to be inserted within that given block of time, whatever that time may be, consistent, if you can get them to consistently Adhere and comply to a schedule where at least you're getting two days a week, then you got a chance. You got a chance. But there are other decision makers that need to be brought to the table in this day and age in the United States, such as a performance coach, a parent, if a kid's going through rehab, if whatever. But I will say, I will end this. This is what I know. Back in the day, the NFL off-season program was 14 weeks, right? We had 14 weeks. It was awesome, and I worked under the great Johnny Parker, man. I worked, man. Coach Parker's a legend in the game, and I. It was like getting a PhD in training, working under him. And what I learned was this: Coach is like, look, coach. He said, now these boys, they finish the season in January. We get them in March. We gotta, we gotta have a two-week period of prep. We have to have a two-week period where we prune. They're running mechanics again because we don't want them to get hurt because as we move through the offseason program, we're going to be we're going to be moving. They're going to be getting more higher exposures of speed. So what do we go back to? Man, we go back to the basics. We go back to getting them and getting them. Fishing at their movement patterns because they've been away from it. And when they're playing ball during the season, it's hard to get in it's hard to get in high quality speed training. Their speed training that they're getting in are the reps that they get on the field by playing at full speed during the course of a practice. And that they're, they're not thinking about some of the things that we would teach independent of their skills of their sports skills.
1: So, you know, it's one of those things that, uh, I've been in the industry for, you know, about 20 years now, and I've, I've had the opportunity to to work with athletes and, and individuals of all ages. And, um, know one of the things that i've really noticed with with a lot of the um sort of the the kids that had that basis of long-term athletic development and now they're maybe um uh, you know a little bit later in high school one of the things one of the common themes that i've i've really i've sort of asked this and and in a fashion where i'm just trying to figure out like what people did and i was like talking to these kids that are just studs. i was like so you know what you know what do you do like where do you train like a couple buddies in the backyard and and uh you know it's funny because you said the same thing you're like hey we just we just chucked the football down and we made everybody juke I mean look we did the same thing. We'd punt it. The guy would catch it. You just try to run across your front lawn and not get murdered by your neighbor. <laughs> yeah, and like, yeah, that was, yeah. that was one of the best ways that you could train agility. But I think one of the things that people are missing is, is unstructured play. The ability to just go out there and make things up, man, like tag or just get, man, I, I t- took a whole lacrosse team through one of their best conditioning sessions they've ever had. I had two five gallon buckets and tennis balls. Yeah. And it was, hey, you just got to, you got to get that ball in. And I had those, you ask those kids to do conditioning. They won't run for you. You bring the game out. They're bring they're the leaving game. smiling and sweating, man, right? So you got to the trick game. them into it. You got to trick them into it. But the unstructured play, the ability to go out and just have fun and create. I feel like as coaches, we need to plan on unstructured play, but not plan unstructured play. Does that make sense?
2: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Hey, coach, I agree with you 100%. Look, at one of the... We talk about engagement, right? So social media engagement. Well, as a yeah. coach, engagement is very, very important. And there's different levels to this thing. So you're coaching a youth sports team, different approach with youth athletes, right? oftentimes more developmental, but nevertheless, gamification can be a very effective tool to help support your athletes and to create an awesome experience for them. Same thing with high school college man college you're training collegiate athletes they're training year-round with you so given that they're year-round with you they truly benefit from breaking up the monotony of just your typical training program where you go in the weight room you bang and then you go out and it's like you got this structured conditioning plan man when you add when you add a game element to it, and then you set the rules and you can set the rules around what you want to accomplish as it relates to their conditioning, right? As it relates to their movement, as it relates to the, the competitiveness is gonna take care of itself. Love it. So now you build, you build in a process where you're gonna get everything that you want out of that session and then some. Now you take it to the pro level. The pro level, they love competing. Man, because it gets monotonous for them too, right? You're, you're taking them through the training plan, through the training plan. You're doing the same things. It's like, okay, they're getting good working. But man, when you add the element of, again, lack of a better word, gamification, you add the element of unstructured play. You add the element of going to them saying, hey, look, what's the best game? That, what's the best game that you've ever played? I, I learned so many games from my players by asking them the question, and they break out again. Oh, you did that at Clemson? Oh, man, I love that. Okay, hey, fellas, today, this is what we're going to do. Right? And then we get everything we want. And then we are the master. We're the master, you know, puppet ma- the puppet master. And we're manipulating how far we want them to run, how long that activity goes. They're going to go 100%. So you, you don't have to measure effort. And so there are things that you can do that will help to drive the engagement, help to drive the the intent of a competitive, competitive spirited, yet effective training program or training session.
0: So Mike, before you jump into your next question, you, you actually hit it going on something that was bouncing in my head the whole time you're talking about this was, was one of the challenges with, with speed development is is getting full intent. Uh, of and I I tell athletes a couple things one of the only way you're going to get fast is to practice being fast but for me to yell at you and say come on go faster doesn't necessarily always work but as soon as you put as soon as I say I need you to pair up with somebody that is going to push you is going to challenge you now it it works itself out um Mm -hmm. and then even no doubt and even with the challenge like right now we're we're just starting our high school football season here in, in New Jersey and you know, one of the biggest challenges is we get really high heat and humidity on a Friday night and saying, look, one of the, ch- there's multiple reasons why we have cramping. And one of them is because if you don't ever go game speed until Friday night, you're going to cramp because you've never put your, your tissues under that level of strain and under that level of, of, of pressure. So if, if you don't want to be cramping Friday
2: night, you need to start practicing game speed now. There's no doubt about it. Right. My saying, Train fast to be fast. We have our CERT, train fast to beat fast. And again, it goes to that, it goes to that oh, adage of what, what do you want to accomplish as a coach? What do you want to accomplish? What do we want to elicit? What is the stimulus that we're going to use? And then we're constantly looking at how they respond. And there are great tools. There are great tools out here to measure performance, to measure whether someone is, is reaching their game load right th- th- we know this and it's good stuff it's really good stuff but you know what man there's skill and there's will right and so if you're not pushing someone at some point in time to get past a comfort level then when they get against they get up against somebody who's who's got that same skill level that they have but then they got this oh man you're in trouble you're in trouble that person that's going to keep coming so we as coaches we have to be able to look at the game load, which is very, very important, but at the same time, we got to be able to say, okay, you know what? We got to create an environment that's that's competitive. We have to create an environment of preparation that gets them ready for different environmental conditions, that gets them ready to compete for a full game. I would say, how when we talk about conditioning. Well, we can break it down. What type of conditioning, right? But it comes down to this. When we look at how well do you need to be conditioned, you need to be conditioned to be able to play at a high level for as long as the game lasts. And oftentimes, it's a neck up thing, right? It's a neck up thing when they get to that point, to that threshold where they're tired, but they still got to go. And I think as coaches, we we need to train that. We need to stretch that athlete. Sometimes we extend them beyond the boundaries. Like right? we're so afraid to get athletes hurt now. But if you structure your training plan and you build in the processes, then it's not like you're doing something random. Man, this is this is a planned activity that fits within our block of training or within this this meso cycle or this meso cycle you can you can structure it accordingly but at the end of the day you need to prepare it's like what is your preparation preparing you for right what is your preparation preparing you for hopefully you're preparing them not only physically but you're also challenging them and you're putting them in situations where they have to dig a little deep to be able to overcome whatever is presented in front of them
1: All right. So, you know, we've talked a lot about sprint mechanics and running and conditioning. Um, Let's talk about the weight room a little bit. So where does the weight room create a tangible carryover into uh, into overall athletic speed? And what can uh, what can we take away from it?
2: Okay, This is a question that I'm sure is debated on Twitter time and time again. It comes back to the question: how strong is strong enough? And when we look at a male athlete, some of the benchmarks are two and a half times, two and a half times body weight for trap bar deadlift, two times a squat, body weight, two times body weight for squat, right? 1.7 times body weight for clean. So I can tell you this: I am a strength and conditioning coach. And There are certain times where I get petrified in the weight room, especially with my pros. You you have guys that they love the weight room and they want to push weight and they don't feel strong unless they're pushing a lot of weight. Okay, all good. So when I say I get scared, I'm like, this person's way over two and a half times body weight. This person's pushing a heavy load. Let's say if it's a back squat. So you start to think, I don't wanna just contextualize this in the sense of football, but at what point is strong enough? And when we look at strength, or I like to call it force, force has time constraints. We know absolute strength is different than say starting strength is different than other types of strength, speed strength, strength, speed, and so forth, right? We've looked at that spectrum and so we're, primarily referring to concentric strength, concentric activation patterns. But we also know there's the eccentric component. And so when we look at the eccentric component of strength and we look at the term biotensegrity, right, where let's say if you have a triple jumper who's coming down the runway and they're landing on one leg, they are able to absorb and attenuate seven times body weight on a single leg. Seven times body weight. We can't replicate that strength in the weight room imagine putting somebody's single leg movement seven times body weight collapse so how in the world does that athlete how are they able to be able to absorb and be able to absorb and then produce the corresponding concentric force from a single leg so those are the questions that are still looming to me as it relates to force right because the we, we oftentimes get caught up in the concentric but the eccentric as we know, we can produce greater forces eccentrically, but we're, we're talking, that's why I said breaking and stopping is so important. Like having breaking strength to be able to absorb and attenuate that load. And then that coupling time to be able to produce that force, right? That, that ability, man, it's, it's lengthen, shorten in a note, in a moment's notice. So when I look at strength and how I train strength, I, when an athlete has reached a certain threshold as it, as it relates to their strength, and I know they're getting close to their strength capacity, man, I'm about rate of force development, I'm about producing force fast, I'm about looking at different special exercises that will help them both concentrically and eccentrically produce force fast and then absorb force fast, right? I I love a K-box, I love a K-box, right? It's not a true eccentric load, however, you can manufacture increasing that eccentric load by giving yourself... By pulling yourself down, right, creating more concentric force, which is going to thus increase the corresponding eccentric force. So there's a lot of things that I I look at. One big thing as it relates to sprinting, hip flexor. Man, I think the hip flexor is an undertrained, it's an undertrained muscle group that works in conjunction with, you know, your rectum and other, other muscle groups. But that muscle group in terms of being able to, like, if I'm sprinting, being able to reverse that swing forward. It's a very, very important muscle group. So I like to spend time on that. We know that there's a lot of this big, big movement on run specific ISOs, which are, which are really good. So it's it's about training. We look at strength training. It's about looking at the whole system, right? From ground up and figuring out, okay, here's what this athlete needs and here's what sport they play, and here's what gender they are, and here's what age they are, and then looking at all these factors and developing a plan around that to help improve their performance. Well, it, it's funny we're having this
0: conversation because I literally, before we went on this, this uh, recording, I was in a high school weight room, and it, you know it was almost the opposite situation. It wasn't that, oh my God, I'm scared this kid's lifting too much. It was standing next to a position coach and seeing one of our linemen who was killing kids on Friday night and he's got like the weakest bench in the room and it's and it makes you for a split second question yourself and you're like do I even matter like do I even matter in this process but then you know I turn around and say well look if I can get this kid as a younger a younger starter if I can get him stronger then he's going to be you know he's going to be lethal if he's doing this now and he can only bench press you know what
2: he's doing now I can only imagine if we put more force power into him and and last thing on that think about this right so if we just go back to football i've seen i've seen a lot and i've seen guys who are real big benchers and they get ragdolled they just get tossed there is something to be said with leverage and understanding like there's a lot of things that factor into play strength a lot of things and the one thing that i've observed that i've seen when we talk about guys play strength it's their like take Frank Gore for example. Frank Gore in the weight room, he was really, really good in the weight room. But on the field, that dude played like a monster. Because pad level. He always ran behind his pads. If you looked at how his lower body, big, thick, thick, lower body, thick butt, thick, like just Built for power. So when he's running behind his pads, right? And that dude's that dude lays that hammer on you, and I'd ask him, i say, hey Frank, so tell me, man, like, how come you never take direct hits? And he's like, Man, coach, I just turn my shoulders. Right. So he's able to run behind his pads, and then he turns his shoulders and then he uses his opposite hand to create momentum to run through a tackle. So there's all these different I'm just talking running back position. So there's all these different ways that Players have different strategies and different techniques to help them magnify their strength and power and play strength on the field, which combined with them having a strong basis of strength. Now you're talking about somebody that that man, you look at them and you're like, whoa, you know, they're hard, they're hard to deal with.
0: All right. So we've been running a while. We're probably a little over time. You yeah. got what you got time for one more? I can sneak in here. I do. All right. So we can't talk about fast people without talking about hamstrings, because that's always the thing that pops up, especially when you talk about really fast guys. So tell me if you had to say your top one, two, three, whatever it may be, what you think are contributing factors, why the fast guys are always grabbing the back of their legs.
2: Man, tell you what, I mean, there's, there's a genetic component, right? Some fast athletes are just predisposed to hamstring injuries. Right, and it may be a genetic factor. The data suggests that very fast athletes are most likely to sustain a hamstring injury. You got the muscle architecture. So, when you look at you know the fiber type of the muscle structure, you know, some speedy athletes, they it can make them vulnerable. And this is based on this is based on research, running mechanics, as we talked about. That's a big factor, right? Does Does that athlete have a long loping back stride, and are they a reacher, right? Are they a scooter? And most athletes that are the scooters, and that foot lands in front of the center of mass. They are oftentimes can be susceptible to hamstring injuries. Then you have things like muscle imbalances. You have things like high risk. I mean, uh, mobility and strength concerns. So those are all things that can that can make an athlete more susceptible to a hamstring injury. And then there's game and competitive situations where they might just get hit and knocked off stride and their legs just cast out in front of them and next thing you know they're grabbing the hamstring so there is there's a lot of different factors that contribute to a hamstring exercise hamstring injury all right so this has been an
0: absolute masterclass in speed so i, I could take and listen to you all day coach um, but but i want to respect your time so before we wrap up let's let's kind of share with everybody kind of what's new and, and exciting for you and what you got coming up in the next year Oh man,
2: got a couple things coming up. So we are launching a speed training for business course, which is a course that takes like I want to help. I want to help coaches earn a living, a good living that's a, that's sustainable and that will give them freedom and they can live their life by design and not by default. A lot of coaches. We're, we're always acquiring information on speed. And, and that's me too. With the same token, I want to be able to give them some great information around how to build that business and how to monetize what they do so that they can earn a great living. So we have that course. And then Dr. Ken Clark and I, we're going to launch a speed training course where he's going to do the science and I'm going to do the applied, the coaching piece. And we're going to marry those two together. It'll be a four-week course that we're looking to do in October, so those are two of the big things that I have on my plate, and I'm going to be a lot more active in terms of disseminating and sharing information to the coaching population. I love it, and, and it is
0: something that that we're we're waiting uh, very much to see because I like I said I could I could soak up your information. I've been doing it for years, and we'll continue to do so. And we're going to have all your links and uh, and so forth up in the uh, show notes. But can't thank you enough for your time and and, and sharing everything you have with us and and everything that you've done
2: for the industry as well. Oh, no, thank you. I appreciate it. I'm honored to be on this. And good luck to you guys as well. Uh, I appreciate it. And I want to thank
0: everyone out there for listening. And this has been the Principles of Performance Podcast. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Principles of Performance Podcast. If you've enjoyed our content, please like and share on your social media outlets as well as subscribe and give us a review on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, or whatever your preferred platform is to listen to. For more information on the principles of program design courses and workshops, visit us at www.principlesofprogramdesign.com and follow us on all of the social media channels where we post new content every day. To save 10% on any PPD courses, enter the discount code PRINCIPLESPODCAST10 at checkout. If you have any questions we can answer or suggestions for the show, you can email us at info at principlesofprogrammedesign.com or message us on social media. Thank you again for your support.